This World Is Not My Home is a great example of how uh, my mother and daddy sounded when they performed together all over the place. This happens to be a record they made a little bit later, but they never changed their sound. That's daddy singing lead with his high country tenor, that Appalachia country sound, and that's mother trying to hold back singing harmony, and she sounds just like the juke joints that she came out of. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid out somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door And I can't feel at home in this world anymore Wow. There you go. Brother Ray Jones and his wife Fern, your mom. Did they meet through music or did they meet through the church or what? No, they met uh, in a little town, I think Hampton, Arkansas, where daddy had gotten out of the CC camp and was a cook in a cafe. What is the CC camp, please? Civil Conservation Corps, Roosevelt's camp. Uh, He went in in his teens uh, because his family was so poor, they were sharecroppers and he was the oldest of 10. And it reached a point where he could send more money home from the CCCs, they call them. So he had gotten out of, uh, of the Corps, was working as a cook, which is what he did in the camp. He was an extraordinary cook. And he was working at a cafe that Mother walked by on her way home from high school. And they met, and he always likes to tell the story that he romanced her with his cooking. Maybe he did. And then they, then they went to their share of, then, you know, when he got to know her, he realized she was already a singer with a band, had a radio show sang in juke joints when she was 12 with her mother's approval. So she was years ahead in terms of that. And when you came along, you grew into a family that you had, uh, you had a brother who's a little older, Leslie Ray. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you grew into a, 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 an evangelist family with your, your father being uh, uh, a preacher. Mm-hmm. And the, and the music was just a big part of what they did. And it was a part of time in American history that was very, very short, actually, very fleeting period of time when there were evangelists traveling throughout the country, mainly in the South, I guess, doing the tent revivals and so forth. You still see mm-hmm. that kind of thing once in a while on the side of the road. I don't know how similar it is to what it was then. But, uh, you know, take us back to that time because it, it had not only... A tremendous influence, uh, of course, on religion and on music, but really, I think it is so unique to to uh, the the story of the United States that had a tremendous uh, influence on uh, on American culture and society. Yeah, it really did. In fact, one of the reasons I finally got in gear to finish the book I wrote was me realizing that there was a substantial chunk of American history within 
a little over a decade, and I happened to be born into that and lived through it, and am the last in my family remaining to tell about it. One of the reasons I took my manuscript to a university press is that they honor uh, the parts of American history that I wrote about. So it's Southern history. It's the transition from um, a specific form of worship that was more structured and after World War II became what was called the Personal Jesus Movement. That's about when Daddy joined the ministry. So he was preaching as a fundamentalist Pentecostal evangelist. Mother already had music in her life She, from the time she was a child. They made a very charismatic team uh, on the road, in auditoriums, under revival tents, uh, later on records. Uh, we had a radio show from the time I was born. I sang on the radio with my parents. So the transitions of religion, the music, the way mother's music uh, from juke joints and honky tonks became gospel for her because she promised daddy she would only sing gospel in public. So the we lived through the transition of uh, gospel music into rockabilly into rock and roll and my parents were part of that. So I, I love that you I love that you played that first song because that shows the two sides of them coming together. Plus they were gorgeous. They they drew crowds. They were that. You know, I love the story uh, that you tell in your book, The Glory Road, uh, in in terms of their individual personalities. And they were so different in so many ways. And yet they anchored each other, didn't they? I mean, you had, I mean, your, your, your mother anchored the musical side of the family, but your father uh, anchored the religious, uh, the, the intent uh, mm-hmm. the basis of the family and that's what and they work together and the fact that your mother and, and maybe you can go into this a little bit really really wanted her own musical career she wanted to be a singer with records hit records and and uh, doing the you know I don't know whatever the, the Grand Ole Opry or whatever those shows were at the time uh, but she as you said just a moment ago she promised your dad that she was going to stay rooted in this uh, in this gospel music that's fascinating to me about their relationship. Yeah, at home. Oh, go ahead. No, that was it. I said oh, that was fascinating about their relationship in that respect. Yeah, and that sets up the conflict that, for my brother and me because the two of them honestly were crazy about each other, but there was a huge conflict which you could call faith versus ambition. Uh, he really did just want to preach. The fact that he was good looking could play the guitar, sing, was crazy about his wife. All of that made people want to watch them do what they did. But Daddy really uh, hankered to settle down and shepherd a small flock. He just wanted to be a country preacher. Well, he's married to this gorgeous woman who wants to be a star, but she loves him, so she wants to stay within the confines of gospel. And by gum, she did it. But it sure sent us back and forth. Uh, it was just like a roller coaster that Lester Gray and I lived. When she would win the battle, she would say, well, we have to travel here to sing. He would eventually persuade her to settle down so he could pastor for a little while, and then it would all start all over again. It sounds to me like there might have been a little bit of conflict in him, at least maybe when he was much younger. 
this humility and the desire just to pastor uh, to his own flock. And at the same time, he learned to play the guitar and how to sing. Yeah, everybody. So there was that his, side of him, right? Everybody in his family was musical, and like a lot of poor families in the South that we came up with, and a lot of stars that you'll hear interviewed today, they'll they'll say, "Well, my brother played the fiddle, and my my mom taught me piano." Poor people in the Deep South when I was coming up, a lot of big families were musical. It's just that ours went on the road. Yeah, there was a lot of conflict, and I think. Uh, the only way he could manage living with this woman that he loved was to give in once in a while and go on the road. So that's what we did. We'd go on the road, then we'd pastor a church, then back again. And then going back to you and Leslie Ray, you didn't care for that lifestyle no. from a young age, right? Uh -uh. Talk about no, that. Did not. The fact that we could hear harmony and we could sing harmony, which is also true of a lot of families. So there's a family harmony that exists in a lot of families. Um, Leslie Ray and I both could hear our parts and daddy would teach us in the car. And by the way, at home and in the car, we knew the words to every song on the radio, not just religious. Everybody in our house sang the blues, sang country. So daddy would let us, um, Leslie and me, listen to say, Sons of the Pioneers. And then he would say, now, do you hear that part right there? Well, now we're going to switch over to what a friend we have in Jesus. And, you know, Nita Faye, here's you. Lester Ray, here's you. Let me hear you. And that's what, so we became a, a traveling musical family, much to the dismay of Leslie Ray and I, who we loved when we pastored those churches in little towns. Let's put this in a time frame. What years are we talking about? And what kind of... Uh, what kind of music was popular outside of the gospel and the, and the music that you you all performed? Okay, that's a good question because this whole book of mine, uh, it's got so many references to popular music. Um, on the radio, we listened to Mills Brothers, Nat King Cole, Bing Crosby. Daddy listened to Hank Williams, Sons of the Pioneers. Uh, we, Mother predates Elvis, Patsy Cline. And it's just a couple or three or four maybe years older than Johnny Cash. So they came along right behind her, and then they began to be heard on the radio. Um, Mother loved pop. She liked pretty slickly produced big ballads. She was in love with Brooke Benton, um, uh, Herb Jeffries, big band singers. She could emulate that. But she sang more kind of down and dirty. Daddy... Uh, worshipped at the feet of Hank Williams and and also a lot of black artists in our in their record collections a harmonizing four that uh, was daddy's favorite gospel group some uh, poor black men in the south it, he just loved them let's talk about your life on the road at uh, as, as children as you were talking about with you and Leslie Ray uh, just just uh, you know this is this is so well presented, so so brilliantly and uh, explicitly presented presented in your book, uh, The Glory Road, that I'd just like for you to tell a little bit about what life was like in those days for you on the road without a real solid, you know, without a home to go back to at times. Uh, well, it, it was a logistical equation that they had worked out. They chose Texarkana, Arkansas, 
as a place to rent an apartment, and we didn't really own furniture when we were on the road. We left all, every time we left a parsonage, we left all the furnishings and most of what we owned. Uh, but we rented in Texarkana because they would have an address and Leslie and I had to be educated. So we would enroll in the school in Texarkana and we did that for several years, but we, but we weren't there. They would send our homework out to a general delivery mailbox when we were on the revival circuit. Daddy would pick it up. We would complete it, mail it back. In um, on the road. Well, you, let me let me just interrupt for a second because you yeah. mentioned the word parsonage, and I think that's a word a lot of people don't know these days. Oh, you, okay. You, you're talking about uh, the times when when your father uh, hooked up as the uh, as the preacher mm-hmm. in a particular church in a particular community, and they always had a home for for the preacher's uh-huh. family, right? Yeah. So that was the parsonage. It was it was kind of like a mid to lower rate rental house in any given uh-huh. town and it belonged to the church and then they would furnish it with used furniture so that would be we would be on the road living in motor courts basically going out to the revival grounds or the auditoriums going to local radio then when we'd settle down when daddy would win the battle we'd take on a church which we did i don't remember how many times five maybe four or five churches and we'd live in a rental house and rental furniture, the furniture belonged to the church and it was old. But Leslie and I were in heaven when we had a rental house. Because understand that when we were on the road, we were the preacher's kid. Our daddy's religion was very strict. It prohibited just about everything. And it, uh, it limited who we were allowed to socialize with. We only saw people who believed the way our parents believed, which we disagreed with. But when you lived in a little town, you could sneak out. And Leslie Ray and I couldn't wait. Every time we stayed in a town, we couldn't wait to see what the sinners were doing because everybody else was a sinner. <laughs> well, you were very young. You were learning about the world and about the society around you. And you lived yeah. in such a, such, a, such a restricted part of that society. Right, we did. And, uh, you needed to find out what the world was all about. I think that, that so how did, how did that, uh, how did that uh, affect your relationship with your parents? Uh, not to their benefit, they would tell you. Uh, we were, we were always feisty. Uh, Leslie Ray more than me. I admired his, uh, his spunk and his temper. He did not like being told what to do. Now you go load the car up, you know, we're going to travel. He stopped singing early on. I don't remember when. Maybe he was 9, 10, 11. He said, I'm not singing with family anymore. Um, so it, it affected us uh, greatly. Um, we, The more we learned about the outside world, the more we learned to keep what we knew to ourselves. We kept it between us. It really became them and us, front seat versus the back seat in our life. Um we lied to the new friends that we made because we didn't want to bring them home and have them find out that we weren't allowed to, say, watch television or wear, I couldn't wear a bathing suit or gym shorts. It was against their religion. Um, we we schemed, hid, lied. Then we'd get caught. And then we'd disappoint Daddy. And then we'd get a lecture. And we enjoyed absolutely every minute of exploring how other people lived. It was worth it. Take us to uh, 
take us to a tent revival. A, you know, a typical, I guess, a typical weekend day for you all. Uh, we, we're starting to understand a little bit about the background of your family and what went in, went went on inside the home and inside the car. But take us to to the the uh, the Jones family as seen by uh, people all over the South as yeah. you came through town and did your performances and and uh, your your sermons. Well, it really was quite an effort. Mother was very skilled. She did all of the advanced publicity for any appearance. So let's say a group of pastors generally would sponsor us, and that mean they would that means they would send us gas money, uh, put us up. They pay through their churches to put us up at a motel. Several pastors, or if it was a big church like the one in Amarillo, um, they would bring in mother and daddy to revive, which is the basis of a revival, to revive the beliefs of their congregation, to get more people to join the local church. So mother and daddy were like the entertainment. He was the entertaining preacher. They were those Joneses who sang. Mother would, um, we had woodcuts, which probably most people listening to this have never seen one of, but it's how photographs used to get reproduced. We would sit for photos. They'd be made into woodcuts. Mother would send them ahead to a newspaper. They would have, the churches would pay for ads in the newspaper. I have scrapbooks full of those. And what were called handbills, I guess they'd call leaflets today, which crop dusters would drop all over the town and storekeepers would put in their windows. And so we were, you know, the circus coming to town. It was free. All you had to do was listen to a sermon. And then you got to hear all that music, which was really something, because local musicians really respected mother and daddy, and they would come out. So we'd arrive at, at the motor court and uh, unload the car, and then uh, daddy would go and have a business meeting with the pastors, which I tried to replicate in the book, because I know it's history that's gone now. And Leslie and I, of course, I think it came across beautifully. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Leslie and I were both, of course, bored with these meetings. But if we went with Daddy, uh, then we didn't have to deal with Mother's nerves before performing, which happened all the time. <laughs> She's very high strung. And then, so we'd go out to the site. Uh, the tent site would be uh, out in the middle of a field. It didn't even need to be near a town. People, it was free entertainment. Kids would stay home from school when a revival rolled into town. So we were renting tents. We were not Oral Roberts or Billy Graham. We didn't own our tents. And um, Daddy explained that to me. Uh, what happened even before I traveled with them was he was comfortable with a tent that held just a few hundred. By the end of our tent revival days, the most that we that he would work up to was one that held 3,000. Now that's still a huge, wow. that's a huge tent with multiple poles. Yeah. So if you've ever been under a tent with the poles, probably the part that fascinated the locals the most was watching that tent go up. Because whomever drove the truck, say out of Houston or Dallas, um, was a rental tent coming in in canvas, poles, ropes, guy wires, and a crew was hired. And uh, they were like steeplejacks. They could climb, they could rig. And then the church uh, people, congregants, like the deacons, were taught to work the tent flaps because of the weather, as you now know, in the deep south can get you every time. So imagine being under a tent with all those flaps down and having a, a Texas wind come up under that tent. It would literally lift <laughs> it up. And it was very dangerous. Yeah. So 
so the poles had to be anchored. Then a platform would be built by a local carpenter. It would roll into place. A ramp would arrive. A piano would be rolled up for mother. Daddy would have the sound system. We had a portable generator arrive behind the tent. Now, I hope you can picture this. And, um, and we're out in the middle of a field. And so if it rained and the field got muddy, your truck would just get stuck. If you came out to that revival that night, you just wait your turn to get out. What you're describing is the construction of a circus coming to town. We were the circus. It, 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 without the animals. Yeah. Leslie would have a lot to say about what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> really? He did not, In what way? He did what would he not say? like being a part of the circus. Let me tell you, as soon as kids started to gather around and ask him questions and say, oh, you're so lucky, or isn't your mom just so beautiful and you should have seen his face. The storm cloud would gather. Leslie hated, hated that. That's very sad. That's very sad. He struggled with that throughout his life, didn't he? Yeah, he and mother also were a lot alike temperamentally. So our home, really, there wasn't room for two people with Fern's temperament. She was very tightly wound, high strung. Uh, Leslie had her same temper. But I think I think mother also suffered from depression. I was undiagnosed. I was just about to ask you that. I, that's I got I got a strong sense of that from yeah. reading your book. I hope so. Uh, that that there were there were times that she needed to go be alone in her room, and every once in a while your daddy would go in there and make sure she was okay. But this is how she coped with that stress that just was part of her. Yeah. I think a lot of people understand that these days. Well, she was um, undiagnosed because their religion taught faith healing only. So we didn't see doctors. So we would never have known what might have been her problem, except for anemia. Well, I would have thought that in, in those days, depression was just a word that you used to say, I'm in a bad mood mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? It's not... It was not uh, not an affliction of of, uh, of personal chemistry or or uh, you know something that was genetically passed down or or something of that nature. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the about the faith healing because that's uh, that's quite a central part of your book, and that was a big part of the uh, uh, separation between uh, you and your brother and and your daddy. Leslie Ray got seriously ill. At one point, you described that uh, your father wouldn't even allow him to go to the hospital, but he went uh, anyway. Well, the, Daddy wasn't home when he was stricken. He just collapsed during a game of uh, what I guess you'd call softball. Now we called it workup when you didn't have two teams. Um, yeah, we were playing yeah. ball out in the field, and Leslie just fell over. And uh, so Daddy was at some kind of a conference over in Shreveport, and we were across the river in Bossier City, uh, with grandparents and some relatives, grabbed up Leslie Ray, tossed him in the back of a pickup truck, drove him to the hospital. And as soon as Daddy got word, I guess they reached him by phone. He went and yanked Leslie out of the hospital before he could be diagnosed. Yeah, I think that was a real parting of the ways between uh, Leslie and them for good. It's, it's really pretty scary. It was for me, too, as a little girl. When you come down with something... And you don't see the doctor, and you start to find out that other children do see doctors. And that's kind of 
what we did was began to live sort of a secret life. We didn't tell people a lot of stuff that embarrassed us. Like, um, how mm -hmm. can, you know, a kid will ask a kid, how come your daddy doesn't take you to a doctor? Doesn't he love you? Yeah. Well, those yeah. are the basic. Yeah. Those are the questions that's going through, uh, going through his own mind, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Or your yeah. mind at the time. Yeah. It's like, um, talk about Grandma Kay. What a delightful character she is. Boy, she was. Your mother's mother. Yeah. Uh, sometimes she was our salvation. Sometimes she was the leader of the Greek chorus. Um, she and her daughter, Fern, my mother, were a lot alike. Couldn't live with each other. Couldn't do without each other. We traveled Route 66 so many times because Grandma moved to Southern California in one of those earlier Southern migrations that you hear about. So she'd been out there. From the time I was little, uh, Mother's mother lived in California, which was you know, just a wonderful place to visit. But she uh, disagreed with Mother's marrying Daddy because of, um, first of all, Honestly, I think Grandma Kay would have been happy if she could have just hung out at the honky-tonks with her daughter forever. So first of all, she loses her honky-tonk partner, the daughter that she was lying about her age to uh, to sing in juke joints with, with Grandma Kay's approval. And I must, mother, what, what age did you say your mother started singing in juke joints? When she was 12. Yeah, so, yeah uh, when she was 12. So right, I don't good. think that Grandma Kay had anything against Daddy at the start, except that she thought Mother could have done better financially, and, and Mother was a beauty. So in those days, Mother's talent and her looks would have taken her in another direction, but they were a love match. She fell in love with Daddy. Grandma Kay was a, loved to party, loved to gamble, and loved to play cards at home, loved her cocktails, um, and never kept a secret. As soon as you left the room, you were going to be the subject of the gossip and it was going to be started by Grandma Kay. So she was the source of a lot of information. <laughs> Leslie, and, Leslie and I stayed with her multiple times uh, when the school would say, well, now your kids must show up in class. Then they'd take us over to Grandma and then we'd go to school and she'd tell us stories that our parents didn't want us to know. How, how often did that happen? How much time did you spend with her? The longest, your... we, we were there actually almost six months one time. But but prior to that, we'd be there weeks. It'd be weeks at a time. And then the next person going from, we had a, a, a just a, like a wagon train of relatives between the, the Deep South and Southern California. Whomever was going south would take us back home. We'd put in however much time the school said we had to. It's amazing we passed our classes, honestly. The, the I, I was also fascinated uh, in the Glory Road by the by the uh, re, the uh, the relationship between Grandma Kay and your father. Yeah, they had absolutely no reason to have anything whatsoever in common, except your mom, except Ma, except Fern, and they were and and Grandma Kay, as you pointed out, is also at odds with her. But they got they learned to get along, didn't they? They sure, Daddy did. And they sure did. First of all, Daddy uh, was a kind person. I'm not sure you'd classify Grandma Kay as kind. She was just mostly feisty most of the time, like her daughter. Um, but she was fun. Of course, it's much more fun to be with somebody like Grandma Kay. Daddy was kind, so he was always polite to her. 
but he would also stiffen up. There, there was to be no criticism of his religion. He really believed what he believed. But they were both exceptional cooks. They were both natural cooks. And um, they, sh they had that in common. And I give Daddy a lot of credit because you could listen from the next room when we were visiting her house in California and you'd hear them start talking and they would both of them diplomatically move over to the dish they were cooking or a recipe or, and then I would hear him say something that a son-in-law would say to Curry Favor, which is now Zula, that was her given name. Um, Zula, you've got to teach me how to make that pork sauce that you make. And she would say, well, Raymond, you don't need me to teach you that barbecue of yours and this would start. And that would be the truce they would develop for however long the two of them were going to be in the same house together. And then after we moved to California in the 50s, um, Grandma and Daddy, uh, Daddy was an expert gardener. He, he's a farm boy, you know. He knew when to plant and when to harvest. It was just in his bones. And so he would go over and supervise her gardener over at her house. They, they shopped together. Um, I was shocked myself. She became almost like a champion for him. She used to say to Leslie and me, if anything happened to your mother, your poor daddy would marry a normal woman and be very happy. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. You probably didn't appreciate that. Well, at we the probably time. agreed. That's pretty insightful. We probably agreed. Mother was a lot to deal with. Mother was not, you know, when I wrote this book, I started to realize that I had healed a lot of old wounds. Uh, when you hear me laughing about some of this now, I can truly see the humor in it from the outside. But it took a long time to forgive what Leslie and I considered our lost childhood. We didn't want to be performers. We didn't want to uh, travel. We didn't believe the way they did in religion. And then when I started to write the book and saw the funny parts and saw the, the truthful parts, you know, I can talk to you about Fern and the fact that she was in no way equipped to be a mother. And yet she kept making babies. And I see her as a separate entity, not as the person, you know, that I fought against for so long. Well, you say she wasn't meant to be a mother, but she was, she was, that's not to say that she was unkind or in, in any way abusive, Well, right? her, her wants and needs took uh, precedence over ours. So I would say that she probably shouldn't be put in, part, in, in charge of children. I think I found one picture in all the pictures of the family of her holding a child. And I can remember when that picture was taken. It was when uh, we got a surprise baby born in the family and somebody said, now, Fern, you hold Donna Kay so we can take a picture, and that's the one and only I've got. There's pictures of her standing next to us. But um, but it was Daddy who carried the babies around, who fed them, who took care of both his wife and his kids. So we had more of a bond with Daddy. He taught us to cook. Did you feel that she resented you? No. No, I didn't. Not resentment. Uh inability to empathize with children, I would say. She was damaged by her own upbringing. She did not have a nurturing mother. Grandma Kay was not nurturing. She was fun to be with. She was naughty, uh, but she was not a nurturer, no. 
She cooked beautifully and flirted with the men she fed food to and cooking for grandma was a gift. Also grandma, by the way, could sing, dance, you know, here we go, all those southern families with their harmonies. I guess we ought to fill in the family, whatever whatever happened to, whatever became of your grandfather, of Grandma Kay's. They divorced. Uh, they divorced uh, before I was born, and he worked the oil fields, oil rig. Did you know him? Yeah. Um, he kept up a relationship, was spotty, but somewhat, with our mother, and he would come and visit us once in a great while, only maybe every hmm. couple of years, odd man, uh, uh, never married again. I think both he and Grandma, if you listen to both their sides of the story, had a lot of flirtations on both their parts. <laughs> While they were married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, divorce was a, was a sin in my daddy's religion, so he had a lot of trouble having divorce in the family. I can well imagine. Um, <clears throat> so talk about, talk about Fern's... Uh, personal career that she finally managed to get off the ground to some extent while uh, while promising to to uh, keep her performances gospel and so forth but she finally got your your father to come around and let her go do a little bit of this a little bit of that right well yeah he didn't mind that was an interesting thing i gained a lot of respect uh, for the way they each handled their situation they were mismatched but in love uh, you know, obviously his ambitions and hers could never coexist peacefully, but they were smitten with each other. I think she really meant it when she said to him, I have to sing. I will only sing the Lord's music and I'm going to write some songs and I'm only going to write. I'm not going to write pop music, though she sang that at home. Um, and that worked fine for him. So when she started writing songs, I am still to this day sometimes surprised when I hear her songs in movies and on television shows uh, at the lyrics they're, because they are strictly religious. And some of them are so specific to the evangelical Pentecostal movement we were raised in. I'll give you a, a glimpse of one of her lyrics. It still surprises me that it became a hit, but it did. The first song of hers that was recorded by notable named people was called I Was There When It Happened. And what you need to know about that song it makes me respect the fact that she, she got these out into the public. It was recorded by the governor of Louisiana, uh, Jimmy Davis. He was called the singing governor. Jimmy wrote, You Are My Sunshine. He, had, he was two-term governor. He had a huge recording career. Um, she sent her songs... She would tape them at radio stops. We didn't have a tape recorder. She would tape them and walk out with the tape, and then Leslie and I would take them to the post office and mail them. The song I was there when it happened is a, an exact depiction of the fundamentalist religion they belonged to in that, that their denomination required a conversion experience, uh, speaking in tongues, and a full immersion baptism. The conversion experience is known in country music and gospel music as getting saved, or the day I accepted Jesus as my personal savior. We'll listen to the lyrics of, I was there when it happened, which was, um, there are some people who say you cannot tell whether you are saved or whether all is well. And then the chorus goes, 
I was there when Jesus saved me, the very moment he forgave me, took away my heavy burdens, and he left me peace within, or something like that. Well, that's the conversion experience that she's depicting in a song with a rockabilly beat. So see, she's got daddy's religion in her heart, but the honky-tonk style, and he never questioned it. I never once heard daddy say, Fern, I wish you would sing less like a blues and more like what a friend we have in Jesus. She sang religious music with a beat and something about the artist she sent it to. They heard something. So Jimmy Davis heard I was there when it happened. He's not the same religion as them, but he recorded it. It was a hit. It played on the radio. Johnny Cash heard Jimmy Davis, the singing governor, and Johnny Cash went and sang that song over at Sun Records. So there you go. So I, there's Fern sitting in a little bitty parsonage in Murfreesboro, Arkansas, sending out a song about a uniquely religious experience that somehow is recorded and moved into the secular world. So I, got, I have to give her a lot of respect. The fact that she believed, she would tell you, oh, the Lord sends me my, my titles. I don't change my titles after the Lord sends them to me. So she believed. She believed what Daddy believed. And then she had ambition for her songs to live on, and she was right. They did. There are some people who say we cannot tell when we are saved or when all is well. They say we only can hope and Trust that it is so But I was there when it happened And I guess I ought to know Well, I know when Jesus saved me The very moment he forgave me He took away my heavy burden He gave me peace within Satan can't make me doubt it It's real and I'm gonna shout Cause I was there when it happened There you go. She got Satan in there too. Did you hear that? She even worked Satan in there. Yes, I did. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's really amazing. And and her voice, it was so. I'm wanting to say husky, but it wasn't husky. I'm wanting to say. Uh, put me in the mind of Janis Joplin, but of course nowhere near the same. But I mean, it, it was it was bold and brash, and, and I think it, it must have been a big departure from uh, from the huge percentage of women who were singing popularly in those days. Yeah, it was, and that was part of her problem. In fact, the record label that I now lease the family's music to, they are my partners, um, their booklet, the first CD they released, they called her Patsy on Jesus uh, because they think she sounds like Patsy Cline. But I'd have to point out that she's older than Patsy. She sang that way before there was Patsy. In fact, Mother's Record, uh, the second album, when she, when she signed her record contract, uh, was recorded at the same place in Nashville where Patsy Cline recorded Yes, yeah, so see, she didn't change her style. She did what she promised Daddy she would do. She went through that whole conversion experience. And uh, she 
still sound, sounded like a honky-tonk singer all through it. It's amazing. It makes makes her really unique in her time. And and I have to say, and I'm I'm just guessing, I'm not a music historian, but it had to have had a tremendous influence on uh, on the musical styles of the of the country at that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, Dave. I really wanted to be sure that mother and daddy were placed in the proper uh, in their in their place in American roots music history, and that's why I went with the University Press to make sure that happened. You went on in your life to become a singer yourself. You, uh, I shouldn't say you became a singer. You were always a singer. Yeah, yeah. After after complaining bitterly about getting up those Saturday mornings and going to do the family radio show when I was three, four, five years old. Don't you know that I never moved very far away from a microphone? So here we sit. I'm lifelong, a lifelong broadcaster. Yeah. Yeah, but what, what kind of what kind of music were you doing? Where were you performing, and when was this? everywhere? Uh, nightclubs in Los Angeles lied about my age, just like Fern did, uh, because the musicians' union was very active in Los Angeles nightclubs. They would cruise through a club where you were working and check up to see that you weren't standing anywhere near where booze was sold. And they, some people looked the other way for me because I never looked my age. I looked like about a, uh, you know, a 13 or 14 year old boy when I was 18, 19 years old <laughs> and, and, and standing there wearing all this makeup and feathers and stuff. Um, nightclubs, I could name a whole list of them, but they wouldn't mean anything because probably most of them are gone now. Nightclubs name a tune, name a song or two. Oh, well, I, I would pretty much call it what they call covers now, whatever was popular. Um, I yeah. always loved the standards. Um, I have to say, my brother came to just about every place I ever sang. And we had a running joke because I'm alto. And uh, my brother abs was absolutely crazy about uh, jazz, what we call modern and progressive jazz, and jazz singers, Sarah Vaughan. Ella Fitzgerald, Anita O'Day. Um, and so he would choose, he'd walk into a nightclub where I was singing and act like he didn't know me. And I'd be standing up on stage and there'd be a band, you know. And he'd walk over to whomever was the host or bartender and say, hey, would you ask that singer up there uh, to sing Moonlight in Vermont or Time After Time or uh, pick, you know, one of, five or six that he knew would climb up out of my range. <laughs> and uh, so, and so, because, you know, he knew music, they'd walk over and say, see that man standing right over there? Well, you couldn't miss Leslie. He's tall, good looking, very commanding figure. And they'd see that guy right over there? Uh-huh. Well, he would like you to sing uh, Time After Time or Moonlight in Vermont. <laughs> and then, and then my part of that skit was to say, would you please go tell that blankety, blankety, blankety that I will be singing whatever I feel like in my mix? <laughs> and the poor employee, you know, this happened every club I ever sang in. Right. The waitress have to go back with the story, right? Oh, yeah. We thought we, thought we were so funny. Didn't we just think we were funny? You know, the story is so well told. I don't. We don't need to go to the end of the book, but uh, uh, I hope we've interested a lot of people in in uh, checking it out because it really is it's a it's, it's a it's a family history it's a it's um it's as i've said too many times probably american history 
and it's just a really fascinating insight into uh, into y'all personal relationships at a time that doesn't exist now but i am interested in going forward for just a moment from where we are talking about your your stage career and your singing career how'd you wind up playing records on the radio just somebody i didn't even used to tell people my background when i'd meet them uh well i i started we had a radio show in um bogalusa louisiana when I was in high school, starting high school. This is when I broke away from just being, I had quit singing with my parents. Finally, I took Leslie's advice and quit singing with my parents because I didn't want to. And uh, I, the same show, the same station, rather, WHXY, Bogalusa, um, where mother and daddy still sang every Saturday morning, said, hey, Anita Faye, would you like to... uh, have a show in the afternoons and, you know, local musicians could come on and you could play records, you could do it. And I thought, oh, that would be a fine idea. So I'd go from Bogalusa High School over to the radio station. And and Mother and Daddy still had a radio program that I didn't want to sing on anymore. So they were on WHXY in the beautiful Pine Tree Inn, Bogalusa, Louisiana. And I was offered a show in the afternoon by myself just to talk. Just, you know, you could have, I could have musicians on, a lot of local musicians everywhere we lived who knew my folks. And there'd be, say, a young guitar player that I had a crush on. And so I could just say, hey, would you like to come and be on my radio show in the afternoon? So I'd have some live, and then I'd have some records. And so it just felt to me like I, I never really, I just segued. I just stayed on the air. That's exactly right. Anyway, we we got you we got you back to California somehow. You were working at a uh, relatively small, and I suppose at this point in time, a relatively unheard of radio station, which was just a huge, huge success in its day back in the late '60s and early '70s. KROY in Sacramento, and you were working nighttimes. So when when you were uh, the only female disc jockey I had ever heard to that point, uh, I used to go with a bunch of friends of mine when we were in high school. We'd pile in the car and go down to the radio station and hang outside the window of Croy on Arden Way and look inside and, wow, look at this. There's this pretty young redhead and she's talking on a radio. That was before I met met you, but uh, it wasn't too long before I was on the other side of the glass. I was inside that studio myself, and I don't even remember, honestly, how we met, but that was the beginning of our friendship. Yeah, you know, I love that story. I'm, I love how we met. I think I remembered years later, you and I both talked about, wait now, when was it? I think somebody let you in. Didn't they let you into the station? And they weren't supposed to. We were supposed to be, you know, just looking. You were supposed to look through the glass at whomever was on the air and the station door. That's entirely yeah, the, possible. The, the, the um, door was supposed to stay locked. But but somehow people did get inside by invitation. I, I swear, I think I remember, it might have been Bud Zumwalt, our mutual friend, with whom I did a lot of commercials that aired in Northern California. I think Bud let you in and we said, hey. 
That may be uh, Bud Zumwalt, for those who may go back to that time and place, was known both in uh, Sac- both at Croy and at KXOA in Sacramento before that, where he worked as uh, B. Winchell Clay. And that was how he got the name, is B. Winchell Clay at KXOA. It's in a little rhyme. That was cute. But uh, I honestly don't remember. But I know that we've been sen- been friends ever since, and uh, you know, you you wound up in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and I was in Los Angeles. We started writing a blog together, sort of, kind of, and that's been twenty years. Yeah, I so, just love broadcast friendships. I don't think I've ever met a more creative bunch of people than people who work in radio and television. And it's not just that we have media in common; it's just pursuing different interests and just interesting people to be with we stay in touch don't we yeah well we do have i mean we we've got that uh, one thing in common but there seems to be you're right there seems to be something else i don't know what that is for me it's trying to find the next thing that uh, that i'm suited to do you know and maybe this is Yeah, yeah but broadcast people i think are by nature curious i i I can't honestly think of one who isn't and that gives us another whole area to stay in touch. I I love social media because so many of my broadcast buddies are over there. Well, listen, we've been talking for a good uh, 45 to 50 minutes and it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. I want to you know make sure that everybody remembers the book's name is uh, The Glory Road. I've got it down here, but we're not doing media. We're not doing uh, just in case. And uh, it's a fabulous, fabulous uh, trip through time and a true story that would be a page turner, even if it was just pure fiction. So, uh, and 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 you can find you can find Fern's music online, right? Anywhere, if you just Google Fern Jones, yeah, it'll pop up all over the place. Yeah, good for mother, huh? Good for pardon Fern. me. I said good for yeah. Fern. She was right about her songs. They did live yeah. on. Yeah, she must be adoring you at this point. Well, I hope so. Keeping the story alive. And you do have a, a website? Do you still have an we- yeah, active I website? I have anitagarner.com. Okay. Bless you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Okay, hon. Thank you. All right. Well, he keeps me day by day. He answers when I pray. And he will surely do the same for you. Just can't catch up with my praises to the Lord. To the Lord. His blessings never, ever are a few. Are a few. He keeps me day by day. He answers when I pray. And he will surely do the same for you. Oh, yes. Well, he keeps me busy. Busy, busy. Keeps me busy. Busy, busy. Keeps me busy. Keeps me busy, 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 keeps me busy.